Good evening, everybody. And uh, it, it is Malakowski, but that is a, a mouthful of a name to say. I almost didn't marry my husband because of that. I was like, man, I really like you, but with a name like that, you, you know, I'm not so sure. Luckily, uh, luckily, I was a smart woman, and that actually worked out, and I married the guy. But anyways, I, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. A special thanks to General Metcalf, uh, everybody here at the Air Force Museum, for the wonderful invitation, um, and to my great friends, General uh, and Mrs. Cooper, um, just for your friendship and for your passion for this place, which is palpable and is contagious. And so it's nice to finally be here at this this mecca, if you will, this monument aviation and everything that's good in the Air Force. So thank you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Don Lazarine, who for two years has been trying to coordinate my Air Force schedule to get out here today. And uh, she has been absolutely indefatigable. And uh, I appreciate that, Don. So thank you. Um, more importantly, I'm just really honored to be here today at the Air Force Museum. This is the, the keeper of our Air Force stories. And I'm here to talk about just one story. And there are hundreds of thousands of airmen uh, in our Air Force today, and there have been millions over the history of our Air Force, and each one of them has a story. And I don't believe that any of those stories are any more important or less important than somebody else's. Um, I just have a distinct privilege to be here today to share my one story. But I hope what you keep in mind is that it's just one story, and that I wish you could hear the story of all of our airmen. Uh, past and present, because you truly come to understand uh, all that is great, I think, about our Air Force. But you already know that because you're fans of the Air Force and you're here at the Air Force Museum. So I'm just here and proud to represent our current airmen and, and especially to put a, maybe a visible face on some of the contributions that women are making uh, in today's Air Force. So I was thinking, well, what am I going to talk about? Well, I want to talk about the history of women in military aviation. I started looking into that. I'm like, man, I would need like a week-long seminar to do that. And then I thought, well, I'll talk about the history of just, just women in uh, Air Force aviation, you know, cut out maybe the, the Navy and the Army. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's not necessarily right, especially if you want to talk a little bit about women Air Force service pilots, you know, because that was Army Air Force's days and Army Air Corps days and, you know, before our Air Force was founded. So maybe that's not right. And I was getting really frustrated, and I leaned on my wonderful husband, whose last name is Malikowski, and I said, hey, what do you think I should do? He goes, well, why don't you just tell it through your eyes? People want to hear your life story, how you evolved and be, you know, got where you are today, and share the history of women in military aviation through that. And so today, that's what I plan on doing. I only speak for myself when I say that I have a hard time whenever I bring up the fact that I'm a, people say I'm a woman fighter pilot or that... You know, I'm a woman Thunderbird pilot because to me the term woman, it, it, I hope it's obvious, first of all, but, you know, second of all, it really doesn't do anything to talk about, you know, my character as an officer or my skill as a fighter pilot or, or my contributions as a Thunderbird. I am, I am a, an officer, a pilot, and I'm just proud to be, you know, an airman. So when I get asked to talk about women's contributions, sometimes I, I just get a, a little closed up about it, but I'll, I'll walk you through how I learned the importance of understanding being a woman and what this legacy is, you know, in this great Air Force. And so with that said, I guess I want to share my story, my timeline, uh, along with all of the other women who are sitting here in this audience today. I know we've got active duty and reserve and guard in the audience and a lot of veterans, so thanks to all of you. So with the fact that we're going to talk about women aviators, I'd like to say that no male pilots were harmed in the creation of this presentation. <laughs> and by no means am I trying to say that 
that women pilots should be separate or anything. We walk hand in hand, we train hand in hand, we go into harm's way hand in hand right next to our brothers in arms and we're very, very proud to do so. We've been proud to do it since World War II and we're proud to do it today. All right, so this is just to highlight a little bit about that. So I'm going to talk about it for about an hour is what they said. I'll try not to do that much, but more importantly, after you listen to me, I really hope you guys have some good questions because that's where a lot of the great information comes from. So I look forward to hearing from you and hearing your story uh, once this comes to an end. One of the greatest things I had the opportunity to do in my career um, is dedicate the Air Force Memorial in October of 2006. You know, the Air Force didn't get its own memorial there in D.C. until 2006, and to be on that Thunderbird team was certainly really very quite special. Um, I live just a few blocks from this monument, and it's something that I get to see every day when I go to work in Washington, D.C., and it makes me really proud. A lot of people think uh, different things about the three spires. Um, there's people that t say it talks about our three core values, right? Integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. Um, I like to think of it as, as uh, on a personal note, as what I call TLC. Um, I am a product. Let me go back. I have had an amazing Air Force career. The Air Force has been so good to me. The opportunities that I've been given to go into combat, to lead peers in combat, to fly as a Thunderbird and be a White House fellow is all because of the United States Air Force. It is an amazing organization. But I also realize that I'm not the only person that could have been the first woman Thunderbird pilot or the first person you know, to, to lead over Iraq on Election Day. It's all TLC, timing, luck, and circumstance. And I think I'm a product of TLC. And when I look at those spires, that's kind of what I think, timing, luck, and circumstance. And a lot of people like to look at it and see it as past, present, and future. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing, too. And there's a quote up there. I was talking to a really wise man the other day, and I said, you know, what am I supposed to say? We were talking about legacies and leaving a legacy personally to your family or leaving a legacy professionally. And I was talking about a specific woman, and I said, you know, how am I supposed to feel about her, her contribution, or what she did? And we'll get to details later. And he said, all you need to know is if she had not been, you would not be. And I started thinking about that in context of legacies in my personal life, but also my professional life here um, in the Air Force. All of the things I have been able to do have been because of women who've come before me, because of vanguards and trailblazers who've paved the way. And each step along the way, there's those of us that add our, our skill set and our contributions. And people talk about, wow, it's full circle. You know, we had women flying in World War II, and now we've had a woman senator pilot. And to me, a circle kind of comes to an end. To me, it's just a continuum. If she had not been, you would not be. And today we're very lucky to have one of these, I'll put two pictures up here, but one of these lovely ladies, I believe, is in the front row today. Um, I would love to, if, now if you could stand up, my personal heroine, of course, in the front row, Miss Nadine Nagel. Not only is she a, a woman Air Force Service pilot and a pilot uh, there during um, World War II, but she's also someone who rightfully earned the Congressional Gold Medal. So we are amongst greatness here today. And Ms. Frances Brookings was going to join us this evening, but she sends her regrets, but I also wanted to put her beautiful picture up there. I find it interesting, the patch in the middle is uh, the WASP mascot. Um, her name is Fifi Nella and she was drawn by Walt Disney during World War II specifically for these women aviators, America's first women military aviators. 
And it's ironic because my call sign that I was given back in 1998 is actually Fifi. The fact is it has nothing to do with Fifi Nella, truthfully. The guys gave it to me to be kind of funny because I was the, the girl in their squadron. But I'll tell you something. There's some sweet serendipity to the fact that my call sign is Fifi, and I'm very honored to, to have that. So where, where does my story start, and how do we come full circle uh, on this? Um, that's me. I was born in 1974. Uh, you know, looking at that young gal, I don't know that anyone would think she'd grow up and be a, a combat fighter pilot or that she'd be a Thunderbird or a White House fellow, or that's, that's the gal that's standing in front of you uh, today. And it's ironic because that was the very first year that the military started allowing women uh, into pilot training. And the Army and the Navy actually led the way. And those two ladies up there, uh, Barbara Allen Rainey and Sally Murphy, were the first women to actually get their wings in the United States military. Of course, much to my chagrin, it wouldn't be until 1977, three years later, when I was three. You can see the shock on my face. <laughs> it would be 1977 that the Air Force would have its first women enter pilot training. And there were actually 10 women uh, that went through that together, uh, strength in numbers, of course in that first class. Um, at the time, women were still, uh, still could only fly support type aircraft. So tankers, transport, and of course the trainers. You have the T-37 in the bottom left-hand corner, and then of course the T-38. I was walking around the museum today with General Matcalf and uh, talking to General Cooper, and I was like, wow, there's a T-37 hanging in there. And I realized, I guess I'm getting old because that plane's retired now. So an aircraft I flew is actually, uh, is actually retired. But those women were good enough to train the men. They were good enough to be their instructors. They were good enough to generate uh, pilots of the highest quality to go out there and fill those fighter cockpits. Um, it took also in 1977 was an amazing step um, for the WASP because the WASP had been unceremoniously disbanded following World War II. And it was in 1977 that finally Congress recognized them and gave them um, veteran status. Uh, when that was signed into law in 1977, when I'm this old, um, the WASP were not invited to the, cer uh, the signing ceremony, which just blows my mind. We'll talk about that a little bit more, and I will do something to fix that as we get, get here in the future. But this is happening when I'm three years old. When I was five years old, Olivia Newton-John was awesome, and I liked her short haircut, so I took the Olivia Newton-John record uh, to the store and had them cut my hair just like her. But uh, young people in the audience probably don't even know who Olivia Newton-John is. But <laughs> So I came from a middle-class family. Both my grandfathers were career Navy. My, my father had served briefly um, in the United States Army. We were a patriotic, middle-class American family, and we would go to the Veterans Day parades on the 4th of July, and so we went to air shows. And I, w I went there, and I saw this beautiful plane flying called the F-4 Phantom. And I always tell my husband he has to realize that the F-4 was actually my first love because it was fast, and it flew low, and when it came by, you could smell the jet fuel, you could see it, you could hear it, you could feel it as it shook in your chest. There is nothing more beautiful, in my opinion, than a flying F-4 Phantom. I fell in love with it that day, and I remember telling my dad, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And my dad looked down at me, and he said, you're going to be a great fighter pilot. Little did I know that in 1979, that was completely illegal, and there were no women um, fighter pilots at the time. But, you know, I was five, so I figured I could make my dream uh, come true. So I stayed focused on those things. As I got older, um, this is me when I'm 12. Um, I apologize for holding a Navy F-18. But 
this was the type of gifts and stuff that I would get for Christmas, which was, I guess, a little bit unusual for a young gal back in uh, 1986. And I kept, I kept staying focused on my goals. And in the 80s, of course, you know, we had uh, Panama and Grenada and those uh, invasions there. And women were integral parts uh, to those different operations, obviously fine tanker and transport aircraft. All of this was going on while I was still trying to just, you know, put my posters up and dream of the day that I would fly. And I was in sixth grade, and in my class, I had a teacher who shall remain. No, <laughs> he's a great man, I'm sure, but at the time, I was a little disappointed. Um, every Friday, one of us would stand up, and we would have to say what we wanted to be when we grew up, and then we'd have to give a discussion on how we were going to get there. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a couple months into the, into the school year. I stand up. I said, you know, my name's Nicole Ellingwood, and I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And the teacher stopped me. And he said, sit down and come back next week when you have something more realistic. <laughs> and all of the kids started laughing and making fun of me. This was in 1986, and of course I cried and I ran home. And I remember telling my dad, and all I remember is that my dad immediately got in the car and he left. And I don't know to this day necessarily where he went, but I think he may have had a conversation with my teacher. And so I was depressed and saddened because that's the year that I discovered women couldn't be fighter pilots. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And so my parents, being awesome parents, decided to take our family on a trip to Washington, D.C. to go to the National Air and Space Museum. And that was just like a kid in the candy store. I'm running all over the place. And in this far, dark corner, this really itty-bitty small display, which Nadine, I still tell them that this display is way too small. <laughs> they have information on the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots from World War II. Now, who in here has not heard of the WASP? That's good. This is a good audience. So I'll spare the whole history and, and the whole story there. But, you know, we had over 1,000 women who answered their country's call. Um, they went through the same training. They wore military uniforms, lived on a military base, but were not afforded officer status. They were not afforded the same rank, the same pay, any of that. They were good enough, obviously, to train the men for, uh, for combat, but at the time, obviously, it wasn't culturally acceptable you know, to, to let women uh, go into combat. With that said, these WASPs flew everything. They flew all of the trainers and support aircraft. They flew fighters, bombers, P-51s, B-24s, you name it. People always say to me, are you strong enough to fly that F-16? And I laugh because it's fly-by-wire. I didn't have to take a B-24, you know, and do this like these ladies did, you know, back in World War II. Um, Thirty-eight of those patriots gave their lives in service to their country. Um, they were not allowed to have flags over their coffins when they were buried. And in fact, the girls in the class would have to pool their money to ship the bodies home in pinewood um, coffins. They were instructor pilots, they were test pilots, um, they ferried aircraft, they did it all. My favorite is they towed targets. I mean, who in their right mind would volunteer to tow targets? That is courageous stuff. They tow this banner behind their plane, they let the gentlemen who were going to be fighter pilots come up and, uh, well, shoot at them. I was like, wow, I mean, I've been shot at, but not voluntarily, you know. So they were unceremoniously um, disbanded, unfortunately. The battle would rage on um, for veteran status and recognition. And again, like I said, in 1977, they were recognized, but again, unceremoniously. Um, President Carter did not invite them <coughs> to the White House at the time. 
But the point being here is I'm 12 years old and I'm like, well, of course I can be a fighter pilot. These women were flying P-51s. So it reinvigorated my hope. I knew that maybe in my 12-year-old mind I didn't understand Congress and the law, but I knew women had done it before, so I knew that I could do it too. And so the WASP have been with me and their legacy and all of the trails that they've blazed for me since day one. And that's really the point that I'm trying to make here. I stay focused. I go off to high school. I'm a part of Air Force Junior ROTC and Civil Air Patrol. I'm a huge fan of Air Force Junior ROTC, and I love the Civil Air Patrol. I cannot recommend to organizations, especially the Civil Air Patrol, more highly to young people these days. If you know any young people that are interested in aviation, interested in, in serving their country in a patriotic way, learning more about discipline and self-confidence and teamwork, these are the organizations for you. The Civil Air Patrol actually um, afforded me a scholarship when I was a sophomore in high school that paid for my flying lessons. And so I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I would take off out of North Las Vegas Airport, paid for by the Civil Air Patrol when I was just a kid. And that's actually me on my 16th birthday, which is the age you have to be, um, soloing my first aircraft. I remember flying out of North Las Vegas Airport just down the street from Nellis Air Force Base where the F-4 Phantom was flying, where the Thunderbirds would practice, you know, every Monday and Tuesday, and I would watch them. I never thought about being a Thunderbird, but I did think about that F-4. And it's amazing that I would come back home so many years later as a Thunderbird and fly right over the same field, you know, where I had my first solo as a 16-year-old girl. I point out this gal here because she was integral to me staying focused at this time. That's us when we're about 15, Kim Campbell. She goes by Casey. Um, we've known each other since we were 12. We used to run around and tell people in the Civil Air Patrol, because we were in CAP together, we're going to be fighter pilots when we grow up. And people would just laugh at us, and the guys would chuckle, and some of the adult instructors were like, well, you know, if they'd let you, you'd probably be a good one, but you're probably, you know, just going to have to fly something else, which was fine. Of course, we'll fly whatever they'll let us. But she was important to me because it was nice to have another gal that thought like me. And we're going to hear a little bit more about Kim Campbell uh, later on, but she's been my friend for... 33, 23 years, yeah. So I headed off to United States Air Force Academy, a wonderful and marvelous education. Had a fabulous time there. Um, I got myself involved in the glider program. Uh, people ask a lot, you know, I want to learn to fly, or I don't have a lot of money, or can't afford, you know, big powered engine lessons. I say go for gliders. I think if you can be a great glider pilot, I think you can fly absolutely anything well. If you can learn to fly by the seat of your pants and you can understand energy management and you can fly a coordinated turn with rudder and the yaw string stays straight in your windshield, you can absolutely fly an F-16 or an F-15. People think I'm crazy, but you have to trust me. If you can fly a glider well, I really think that you can fly anything well. And I guess Captain Sully Sullenberger kind of proved that also. But while I'm there at the academy uh, in uh, 1992, um, 91, 92, there was a battle raging in Congress. And that battle was following Desert Storm, whether or not women, the, the combat exclusion law should be lifted on women flying fighter aircraft. And lo and behold, you have all these people fighting for or against women becoming um, fighter pilots. I'm watching this, of course, with bated breath as a, as a young aspiring second lieutenant and aspiring Air Force pilot. Because I remember I would walk around, I'd be like, you know, I'd be a fighter pilot if they let me. By this time, the F-4 Phantom had been retired, and so I said, well, I'll fly the F-15E Strike Eagle because that was its replacement. So I had all this F-15E Strike Eagle stuff up in my cadet room, 
I said, I'm going to fly the F-15E Strike Eagle if they let me, but they won't, so I want to fly the KC-10 because I want to be able to drag the fighters into combat because fighter pilots can't do anything without tanker pilots, which is true. And so that was my goal, and I walked around probably a little bit cocky, and then all of a sudden there was this day on the terrazzo. It was my sophomore year. And they made an announcement over the big loudspeaker. I'll never forget it because it was a cold day, and I was walking by myself, and, you know, you're, you listen, and they say, attention in the area, attention in the area. And you're like, yeah, you hear that all the time. But they announced that Congress had lifted the ban on women flying fighter aircraft. And you would think I was totally excited, but I was absolutely petrified because I realized I had been talking smack since I was like five years old. <laughs> and like, you know, you have to like go to pilot training, finish that, and you got to finish kind of high. I'm like, then you got to make it through fighter school. And all of a sudden it hit me that, man, oh man, you know, I hope I can do this. My friends come running over to my room. They're like, Nicole, they lifted the ban. You're going to be able to fly your strike eagle. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I hope I just get a pilot slot. <laughs> and one of the coolest things happened um, my junior year. Uh, Jeannie Tally Flynn up there in the upper left-hand corner, she was America's first combat fighter pilot. Um, ironically, she flew the F-15E Strike Eagle, which was my dream plane. She was a first lieutenant. They, were sent, they, the Air Force, were sending her around kind of on their education slash media tour, you know, to say, hey, this is the the new way we're going, here's our first woman combat fighter pilot, and, and that's that. And she's a phenomenal human being. And she was coming, she was going to have this panel with cadets. And, like, I got to sign up and get in one of the lectures with her, and I had this picture of a strike you I was going to have her sign and all this stuff. And lo and behold, I got mono. And so I was totally, yeah, mono went around like crazy at the Air Force Academy. Um, so I was locked down, and I missed, I missed Jeannie Tally Flynn. Um, Several years, not many, not many, a few years after that, I would be flying on her wing in an F-15E Strike Eagle. So I got to get my autograph and made up for it, and her and I are having dinner next weekend. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to have her as a mentor. But there I was watching this evolve. Do you see where I'm going with this? Because she was, I can be. And down there, as I approached graduation, which I graduated in 96, 95-96 was when Martha McSally was flying her A-10. She became the first woman fighter pilot to actually fly in combat. She was also the first woman to command a fighter squadron. Um, both of these ladies are still in the Air Force, and they're both doing extremely well, and I suspect their careers will continue for quite some time. But I get a lot of attention for being the first woman Thunderbird, and it cracks me up because this stuff has been going on since the day I was born. There are so many stories out here, and I'm just highlighting a few. While I was at the academy, I was very blessed. A lot of serendipity. Uh, mentors are important. And you know what? Sometimes I do think it's important to have someone who looks like you as a mentor. Mentors come in all shapes and sizes. I get that. But I was lucky to have Sue Ross. Sue Ross was my English teacher my freshman year at the academy. For whatever reason, she took a liking to me. I told her I was going to be a fighter pilot if they'd let me. Kind of cocky and stuff. And she started talking to me and... She became my sponsor family, and for four years I would hang out at her house on the weekends and talk to her and her husband, who was also a, an Air Force pilot. Sue Ross graduated number one out of anything she ever did. She was number one out of pilot training when women couldn't pick fighters. She was distinguished graduate out of anything and everything she did. Two years promotion early to major, two years promotion early to lieutenant colonel, two years promotion early to 06. You get the picture? I mean, what sweet serendipity that I have 
a role model like this. And she kept saying, you need to stick to that fighter pilot dream. And when the ban was lifted, she was the first person that said, you know what? You've you got to do this. I can't go back and do this. I wish I could. I believe in you. How can I help you stay focused and stay confident? And I will tell you, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, those ups and downs that you have, especially as a young gal, it was important to have Sue Ross around. I have that picture down there of the uh, KC-10 refueling at B-52. Because remember, we had Desert Storm 1 in there as well. Now, Desert Storm 1 is what kicked off that battle in Congress, whether or not we should let women fly fighters, etc. So all this was going on as I was starting to go to the academy. I had met Sue Ross. And I love this picture because Sue Ross refueled her husband during Desert Storm 1, who was a B-52 pilot. So yeah, maybe she wasn't in the cockpit of the B-52, but please know, Granada, Panama, Desert Storm 1, women were there. And women have been there since World War II, side by side, hand in hand, with our brother Airman. And I just think of that story, her refueling her husband is, is awesome. And I didn't say earlier, but my husband's actually a striking at Wizzo, so I married my backseater. <laughs> what can you say? He's the best Wizzo I know. If you ask him, he'll say, I'm the best fighter pilot he knows, which is a good answer in my house. <laughs> Upon graduation there, it really was, uh, you know, time to walk the talk. I've been talking a lot since I was five years old. I'd had this dream, and part of me was nervous because I thought, man, if this doesn't work out at pilot training, you know, what's going to happen? I didn't really have a backup plan. And I went in there. I said, you know what? I just, I just want to graduate. I don't care what I fly. But I'll be honest. I, that wasn't really what was in my heart. I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And I remember with my class, 9803, um, there was like 30 or something of us that started. There was another gal, um, Kim Schiller, phenomenal. She went on to, on to fly helicopters. Just a, just a sweet lady. I don't know how else to put it. One of the nicest gals you'd ever meet. We were friends at the academy as well. Um, I went off to T-38s and uh, ended up obviously flying a Strike Eagle. Um, but I remember the first day of class, they have you stand up and they introduce yourself and say what you want to fly. And everyone goes around. There's the, you know, my name's, you know, John Smith and I'm going to fly the F-15. Or, you know, my name's, you know, Billy Bob and I'm going to fly the F-16. And in my heart, I'm thinking, I'm going to stand up and say, I was just nervous. It was really weird. What if I stand up and say I want to be a fighter pilot? Because they hadn't had um, gals come through the pipeline at Columbus Air Force Base that had gone into fighters yet. And so I stood up and I said, well, my name's Nicole Ellingwood, and I'm going to fly the F-15 Strike Eagle. <laughs> and, oh, boy, there was a lot, of, a lot of eyes rolling. You know, 21-year-old boys, 21-year-old girls in the same room. What do you think? And it's a competitive atmosphere. And I sat down and I thought, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I sounded too arrogant. Maybe I alienated myself from my peers. But as you know, it, it actually worked out, so that's good. T-37s, uh, I failed my second check ride in T-37s. Um, I don't want anyone to ever think that I am some sort of perfect pilot because I was a Thunderbird. I've never graduated number one out of anything I've done, ever. I'm always number two, three, or four. <laughs> so um, I graduated fourth eventually out of my pilot training class. There's some stuff online that says I was like number one in my class at the academy and number one out of pilot training. Not true. I was 124 out of the academy and number four out of pilot training, and I'm very proud of that. Um, and I ended up obviously going over to the T-38, this gal also became very important to me, much in the same way that Kim Campbell was. This is my friend, Tally Parham. So I had finished T-37s and started T-38s, and there was a gal that had been in T-38s. 
And sometimes you can fly T-37s at different bases, and they bring you for T-38 training and all this stuff. And Tally was awesome because she was, she was just a cool cat. She was a class in front of me, and she was in T-38s. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's a girl flying T-38s. That's so cool. And she's going to be a fighter pilot. Well, she actually was flying, uh, was chosen to go to pilot training by the South Carolina Air National Guard. So she enters pilot training knowing she's going to be an F-16 pilot at the very end. Whereas I'm active duty, I enter pilot training hoping to rank high enough to hopefully pick a fighter if there is one when our class graduates. But man, she was like my hero. I, I followed her around as if she had been a hardened F-16 pilot for 20 years. And she was only, you know, three months in front of me. But her and I would sit, I remember, in Columbus, Mississippi, open a bottle of wine because, you know, we were 21, and uh, sit in our rocking chairs. And we were very manly, though, towards each other. You'd be like, yeah, fighter pilot, yeah. But we'd share some of those stories. Sometimes the sideways look you got from some of the instructors. Remember, cultural change is hard for everyone in any evolution and in any organization. And... We, the women who were going through it, and I'm sure, Nadine, you can back me up, we had our own, you know, changes we had to, to go through ourselves and things we had to put up with. But it's important to note that the gentlemen did too. And to just walk in and say, I expect you to change instantaneously because I'm here, I have arrived, is not, is not nice, but it's also not realistic. And so, you know, yeah, were there times that some of the instructors, I mean, I had, I had one instructor in T-38s that wouldn't fly with me. He was an old fighter pilot, and it just he wasn't going to change his ways, and I was just grateful for the ones that would, and the vast majority would. But over time, everyone, where we are today, let's put it this way, where we are today, it's changed a lot. You can't walk into a fighter squadron today without seeing at least one woman, and it's really not a big deal. We've been doing it since World War II, but we've been doing it since 1993. So... It was a time of change, and it was nice to have Tally Parham because we'd sit there in our rocking chair drinking our wine, and she'd be like, yeah, this guy said this today. And I'd be like, mm-hmm, yeah, I heard that one too, you know. It was just, it was kind of a, a very fighter pilot-like friendship, and she's still my friend to this day. And uh, I was glad I had her to get through that. Um, 1997, 12 of December, that's when my graduated from pilot training, and that's when my dad pinned my wings on. As you can see, I'm terribly excited. And I'm very excited because I was able to pick an F-15E strike eagle. So right off of uh, pilot training, I headed off to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base um, in North Carolina and got to fly the plane, the second plane of my dreams because, of course, the F-4 was retired. Um, big plane. I uh, showed up there, and there had been a couple of women who'd flown before me in the Strike Eagle, Jeannie Flynn, who we mentioned before, another gal named Don Dunlap, who we'll get to um, in a minute. They were a lot taller than me. And I remember when I walked in, there was this, a little bit of a consternation while we were going through academic training and simulator training. They wanted to know if I was um, tall enough to taxi the plane and use the brakes because they hadn't had somebody my height. And there was this conversation about, should we make her go taxi the plane around the base? I'm thinking, hey, that's just more, you know, jet time for me. So whatever. It ended up not happening because... You know, there was this, ooh, what do we do? And if we do it, we don't want to highlight her. You know how those things, you know, go. Um, so they, they match up pilots and whizzos. Okay, so that was the first kind of thing coming in. And they're like, man, she's just too short. I'm five foot four, by the way, which is the minimum height to fly ejection seat aircraft, just so you know. So I am just, again, TLC, timing, luck, and circumstance. I just get by by the skin of my teeth. 
And in the back seat of the strike heel, you have a WIZO or weapons systems officer. And what they do is they kind of draw names out of hat and compare records, and they match up these crews. And you go through all of your F-15E training with the same crew. So there's consistency, and you learn together. If one person fails the sortie, the other person does. It's a total crew concept. And there, there's this big day after academics before you start flying where they have the crewing day, and it's like a party, and all the instructors get together, and you drink a beer and do a shot with your WIZO or your pilot, and it's this big, exciting you know, thing. And they're pulling the names out, and they're like, uh, Ellingwood and Sabrick, and her and I come walking up, and they're like, they didn't realize <laughs> that they had put two girls together, and they're like, ooh, can we do that? <laughs> I'll never forget the, the looks and the just the chuckling. And they said, hey, we'll change you guys if you guys are uncomfortable. And she, her and I are like, you got to be kidding me. Of course, we're thrilled to fly together. And we were the first Air Force all-female fighter air crew. And I was very proud to, I'm very proud to share that distinction with Gina Sabrick, who is an amazing officer. Um, she went on to get a whole bunch of air medals and a distinguished flying cross in Operation Allied Force. Um, which made her so distinguished, they decided to send her to pilot training, and she is now an F-16 pilot and just returned recently from a tour in Iraq at Balad Air Base. Um, so I'm proud to share um, the Strike Eagle history. But when we went out on our solo, this is the time we first flew together, so I'm pretty happy after landing. This is her back there, just happy I probably didn't kill her. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that point, whistles are kind of just along for the ride because it's just the solo part. We're not doing any you know, tactical employment. And they had news crews out there, and it's bad enough you've got to come around the pattern, you're thinking, oh, I can't mess this up. And it's on your, like, fifth or sixth flight. So you solo pretty early without an instructor. So you're just like, oh, I'm not going to mess this up. And there's these little media vans at the end of the runway. I'm like, just what I need, you know. <laughs> there's these media vans for both of us. But it actually turned out, uh, it turned out just fine. And, and slowly over time, it became, you know, just more normal. We could battle it at each comment, or you can battle it at each look, or you can speak volumes without saying a word at all. And I think her and I, that's what we just did. Were we the best crew? No. Was I the best? She was a better WIZO than I was a pilot. I was absolutely average, once again. Um, but I made it through. Headed off, been in three operational fighter squadrons. Um, I got over 2,000 hours uh, in the F-15E and the F-16, 200 hours of combat time. I flew in Operation Deliverate Forge over Kosovo which is different than Allied Force. Um, and then I was able to fly Iraqi uh, Freedom. I also did a tour in there as an Army Liaison Officer or an ALO with the 2nd Infantry Division cool, uh, out at Camp Red Cloud in Korea. And that was one of the finest assignments of my career because it taught me about close air support from a soldier's perspective and from the ground battlefield. And it made me a lot better uh, as an Air Force fighter pilot and as a close air support pilot when I returned to Iraq in 2005. Tons of stories there, like all of you I'm sure have, uh, you know, from your combat time or your time in the service, but my most proud moment happened on the 30th of January 2005. This is us getting ready to take off just a little bit before midnight. Um, that's Pud Wilson, my Wizzo, and myself. Obviously, we've got all our combat gear on. Um, by serendipity, we'd been selected to lead the only formation of fighter aircraft allowed over Baghdad on their historic election day. So here's the Air Force providing me this opportunity, you know, to be a part of history, which was amazing. If you recall at the time, we moved a lot of the American forces to the outskirts on the ground, and they also removed the aircraft overhead. The idea being that they wanted to give the Iraqi people a feeling of ownership 
uh, for their own security, a feeling of ownership on their big election day. So they allowed a two-ship over. So it was a two-ship of F-15Es. And I've told the story a thousand times a night. I'll try to keep it kind of short, but we took off. The sun rose. We're over Baghdad. We're the only two-ship over Baghdad, and we're relatively low. We wanted them to know we're here, but there's not a lot of us here. And we carried weapons in the event something would happen. We knew where all the polling stations were, and our job was to check those polling stations and make sure there weren't, you know, any bad guys, IEDs, ready for any kind of firefight. And the sun came up, and I'll be honest, the sun is just not more beautiful at sunrise than it is in the Middle East. It is huge and red and orange, and it's because of the sand and the dust in the air, but it's just this color that I just can't explain to you unless you see it with your own eyes. I've been over Baghdad a lot. It's a bustling city. But that morning, they had put the curfew on driving and people. So the sun comes up, and you're used to seeing people coming and going from prayer and market and all that, and there's nothing. It is like a ghost town. Baghdad's a huge city, too. It's a ghost town. And all of a sudden, it hits the time that the, the election, the polling place is open, and there's nobody at the polling places. Now, this is from my soda straw perspective, and I, do I exaggerate? Probably slightly in my mind at the time, but I'm looking around going, where are you people? I mean, we've been fighting. We've lost American lives on the ground, and, no, and nobody is out there. And I ended up in the northeast corner near Shotter City, and we were just looking around with a sniper pod. And I see this lone guy walking down the street. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm, I know what you're doing. You are going to go blow up a polling station because you're by yourself. You've probably got some stuff strapped underneath there. I feel guilty saying that, but that was the way that you have to kind of be trained to think. So we started tracking him in the targeting pod. And lo and behold, uh, all of a sudden, this lone man walking down the street started gathering people behind him. People started coming out of their houses. And I kind of saw this, like, develop in front of my own eyes. And I call him the Pied Piper uh, of Satter City now because he was actually going to a polling station to vote. He was the first guy that said, you know what, I'm going to walk down this street and risk my life to do something that people around the world, including Americans, take for granted all too often, and I'm going to go vote. And uh, before that story ended that day with Pud and I, uh, there were lines, you know, it seemed miles long, people standing single file, calmly, orderly, risking their lives to vote. And I think that the Air Force let me be a part of that. It's pretty amazing, and I'll never forget it. It was a long sortie, and guys wear what are called skull caps. They're uh, on their short hair. They put these, this cloth that prevents the helmet from getting these, these burns and these rubs and these hot spots. Well, it doesn't really work well with girl hair, so after the mission, I had all these hot spots because I didn't want to come off headset in case something happened. So this is on our way back um, to base, and I took off my helmet. And Pud uh, was yelling at me, what are you doing fixing your hair? And I could hear him <laughs> from the back. So I turned around, and he actually had taken a picture. Um, so that was a pretty uh, historic day for Pud Wilson and I and for the Air Force and, and for the Iraqis. Great girlfriend of mine over here, Shaka Fujimoto. Oh, my gosh, five foot four, 90 pounds soaking wet. I kid you not. She's the tiniest thing you've ever seen. And she was a brand-new wingman. I was on my third tour. I was a flight commander instructor pilot. And um, we got to go out while we were deployed to the USS Harry Truman. Um, for, for me, kind of a sad event. I had acted as mission commander in the recovery of two downed F-18s and brought some of their brothers home back to the ship, so they wanted to fly uh, me out there. They said, we have room for one more. Ironically, they only had female berthing open, so I said, well, I guess that means my friend you know, Jen is going. And uh, so we went out there to the Harry Truman, which was really gracious of the Navy and 
what our sailors do on those aircraft carriers is unbelievable. If you ever get a chance to do it or watch it on Discovery Channel, do, because it's just inspiring. Well, my point here is Jen flew on my wing a couple times because they would always put an experienced flight lead with an inexperienced wingman. And uh, I'll never forget one night we were fully loaded. We took off 80,000 pounds gross weight. We are stacked as much as a strike eel can be with air-to-ground munitions. Um, we, got, we got gentlemen in both of our back seats. She's my wingman. It is nighttime. Awful thunderstorms. We're on NVGs. The clouds are going up to 40,000 feet. The tanker pilots are awesome trying to do the best they can to uh, avoid this weather. You get up to 40,000 feet in a fully loaded strike eagle, and you literally have to go into min afterburner in order to stay on the boom, okay? So the gas is coming in just a little bit faster than you're putting those dinosaurs, you know, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't get this gas. And it was the most difficult sortie I'd ever been on, and it was one of her first. And she did awesome. We, you know, we took our time. Her voice, every time she keyed the mic, she, she sounded like she knew what she was doing. She was confident, you know. And uh, what was funny is the point of this story <laughs> is that other tankers will come up behind you, and they'll, they'll stack in formation, you know, a mile, three miles back, and they'll wait their turn. So we had some Navy F-18s behind us or maybe some, you know, British aircraft or whatever waiting their turn to get on the tanker. And when there are aircraft on a tanker, the code phrase for that is chicks in tow. This is not a joke. <laughs> so, so we've got this KC-10 pilot who happened to be a woman, two F-15E women flying and trying our darndest in this thunderstorm to get gas, and all of a sudden these male F-18 guys check in, and the KC-10 lady pilot, who I, I don't know to this day, but bless her heart, she's like, yeah, you know, negative, navy, one, two, you know, hold one mile back, chicks in tow. And she just started laughing <laughs> on the radio. And then Jen and I started laughing, and our whistles started saying, just keying the mic, being like, there's guys in this formation. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so there really were chicks in tow that day. And uh, uh, it was just a good story. And I'll always remember Jen. She just had her second child last week. And uh, she is returning to fly the F-15E Strike Eagle in July of next year which I just found out Monday is the same class I'll be in, so the girls shall rejoin here soon. So why would a fighter pilot trade in a Strike Eagle for flying loops to music? That's a fabulous question. Um, after all that I had seen in Iraq, um, the teamwork, the professionalism, the American people, the true stories of heroism and hard work and dedication and sacrifice, I thought what better way would there be to share the Air Force story? And when I applied to the Thunderbirds, I had absolutely no idea. This is sincere. Uh, first of all, it was my husband's suggestion. I did it three days before the application deadline. And I had no idea that they hadn't had a woman before. Didn't even occur to me, one, because women have been flying since 93. You've got to be kidding me. The Air Force Thunderbirds hadn't had a woman. And two, it was just operations as normal. I mean, all the guys who were my age who would be on the team, they had always flown with women, too. You see what I'm saying? So we didn't think it was that big of a deal. Archivally, I would eventually find out I was the 15th woman over a five-year period to apply to the team. People often say, well, because you made it, you must have been the first one that applied. It doesn't matter to me either way. I did the best I could, but that's the actual numbers because people kept hounding me about that. So I was the 15th woman over a five-year period. I got to fly right wing. All of these guys are phenomenal. They treated me with the utmost of respect. Every single one of them are my friends. I talk with them daily on email. This poor guy, Ed Casey, uh, he was the uh, opposing solo the first year. 
He now is my cubicle mate over at Air Force International Affairs, so he can't get rid of me. And I love this picture because when we would line up before a show, if you've ever seen it, you stand here and they announce you and they do all this, you know, hoopla stuff. But we're always joking and talking with each other. And anytime we'd line up before the uh, mic started, this guy, the jokester, Brian Farah, he would always say, under his breath, he'd go, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. <laughs> and we had fun with it. You know, they realized that there was a lot of extra media attention, but they realized that it was good for the Air Force, that it was sharing 20% and putting a visible face on 20% of our Air Force. They trusted me. He was my instructor pilot, you know, Steve Horton. Scotty Zamzow was my yin and yang. He was the left wingman, I was the right. If we weren't in perfect sync, the whole formation looked off. And Colonel Robbins put up with me, bless his heart. He goes by Hollywood, perfect Thunderbird one. Most difficult thing for me to do are in these two pictures down here. Number three is always in the sandwich. Number one is always correct, no matter what he does. He's your attitude indicator. And that's true, he's everything, because when you're flying so close, you don't have a concept of necessarily where the horizon is. You're not looking through your HUD, you're not looking at your instruments. So I mean that jokingly and seriously. Number two has a little bit of movement under here. We're pulling um, at four Gs to each other. My goal is to not move as number two bobbles up and down, which he needs to, because if I unload, I kill my friend Steve Horton, who I like a lot. So number three is always in the middle of everything. One, two, three. I don't think I figured out how to fly this correctly until probably the, really nicely until the start of my second year. So Thunderbird pilots aren't perfect. We all have our Achilles heel. And for me, it would be the trail formation during training season, and it would be this for my entire first show season. And eventually, and I put the good pictures in there, I figured it out. Because these guys helped me. They trained me. So I kind of became a, a, a role model without knowing it. The crowds and the people would just be freaked out that there was a gal flying. And sometimes I got a little defensive. I'm like, of course there's women flying. You know, women have been flying since 1993 and fighters. And I finally realized one day I'm going about this all wrong. This is an opportunity to educate. And in fact, women have been flying fighters since World War II. So instead of being slightly defensive about it, I came to realize that I had an opportunity right here in this moment of time to share more or an integral part of the Air Force story. And it's here where I realized that it means something for young people to see someone who looks like them succeeding. And I was very proud to be a part of that. And I am proud to be a part of that. So I would have the privilege of coming across for the first time in my life, real life WASP. Right? Since I was, you know, 12 years old, I wanted to meet these gals who kept me motivated through so much. And as a Thunderbird, the wasps come out of the woodwork. They're at every air show. They love that stuff. And, you know, because they're fighter pilots and bomber pilots and, and, and transport pilots. And they always wore these beautiful blue scarves. You could see them on the autograph line flapping in the wind. Gorgeous, beautiful women. Graceful beyond all get out. And just so humble. And this is Betty Blake. Betty Blake is a great friend of mine to this day. She was the first woman to fly a fighter. She flew P-51 Mustangs. How cool is that? She flew P-51 Mustangs. Um, if I had been a fighter pilot in World War II, I'd want to fly the P-51. This is her and I meeting for the first time at my very first air show at Luke. You'll note that the two fighter pilots are both drinking. <laughs> I am a beer girl. She is a gin and tonic girl. 
I had to stop drinking at a certain time because I'm a Thunderbird and I had to go home um, to get ready for the air show the next day. And I was walking away from the bar and she goes, hey, Thunderbird. I mean, like that. And I'm looking at her. And she goes, where are you going? I said, oh, you know, Betty, I got to get going. You know, you hold up the bar for me. And she goes, what kind of fighter pilot are you? <laughs> oh, bless her heart. And I just got to meet so many lovely ladies. Um, Pearl Judd's just a doll. Oh, all of them. All of them. And I had the opportunity, following my Thunderbird tour, to do something special uh, as a White House fellow. And my first month as a White House fellow, I got asked to come speak at the WASP reunion, their final reunion in Texas. What a privilege. I thought, why do they want me to come speak? And I thought, I was really nervous. And I went and I gave my speech, and of course we all ended up at the bar. Literally, we were at the bar till midnight. I couldn't believe these ladies in their 80s and early 90s are just holding it down. And they're talking about how maybe their story had been forgotten. And there was a wonderful wasp called Deanie Parrish and her daughter Nancy Parrish who have an organization called Wings Across America. Uh, wingsacrossamerica.org is a phenomenal website. They've worked their lives to get this website up to speed. All this information, oral histories, etc. Um, and Deanie was talking to me, feisty as ever, just a wonderful pilot. She said, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen got national recognition. And I think the only way for our story to be told, which is all the which is all the WASP really care about is that people know they don't care about a medal. They don't care about recognition in the accolade kind of way. They care about an education of America, of what they did. Because when they were disbanded, their records were signed and sealed classified, not to be reopened until the 1970s. So when the history books of World War II were being written, they were forgotten. That's why they're not in it. And that's not okay. I think all of you agree with that. So Deanie Parrish got me thinking. I went to their website. I went back to this White House fellowship. This is my class. Um, 14 fellows, 10 civilian, 4 military. Uh, we're standing here with Colin Powell. That's me. Right next to Colin Powell. He's cool. And uh, I couldn't shake what Deanie Parrish said. And I went to their website. Man, they put years. And, and they've been writing letters and trying for recognition. And I realized I am in a place to maybe make this happen. And I talked to my husband about it, and I tossed and turned for like a month or two. And in December, I started putting pen to paper, and I come up with these ideas and started shopping them around, and no one was listening on Capitol Hill, and I didn't know what was wrong. And I hadn't told any of my classmates. Colin Powell came to talk, and I was trying to be all kind of cool, though. I'm like, hey, you know, big ideas. How do you take something that's a big idea and make it happen, you know? I was not being very specific. And he said, great ideas need great champions. And I realized I wasn't being very strategic and how I went about trying to garner support through the Senate or the Congress. And I hadn't been very strategic in my presentation. Luckily, there's a great gal named Sarita James, uh, who is a McKinsey consultant. She also happened to invent voice recognition software when she was 18, but that's another story. <laughs> and she worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. This is not a joke. She is my hero, and I wish you could all meet her. Um, she says, why don't I look at your presentation? She helps me redo it. She's very nice. She's like, mmm, that's a real great military briefing. <laughs> you get two minutes with them. And if you can't nail it in the first 30 seconds, you're done. And you also need to draft the bill. I thought, draft the bill? I don't know how to draft a bill. She goes, look, you need to walk in there and in two minutes tell them why the wasp are important and hand them the bill and say, I did all the work for you, now sign it. And I was like, you know, she's like 60 pounds soaking wet. I'm like, yes, Sarita, yes. You know, she would have been a great fighter pilot. And so... Sarita and I went about drafting the bill, and I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress and met up with some fabulous ladies, 
um, Lieutenant Colonel Roxy Dolphin, United States Army, Miss Angie Knappenberger, United States Navy. They've never gotten recognition or publicly applauded for anything they did with this bill, and so today I'm doing it for them. Senator Hutchinson, that's her aide, and she is Senator Mikulski's aide. Senator Hutchinson and Senator Mikulski decided to co-champion the bill in a bipartisan way. All of the original signers are all of the women senators. And let's be honest, Jeannie Parrish and Nancy Parrish had an idea. They had all the ammunition. I had the gun in the right place to shoot, and these gals are the ones that every day for 10 months walked the halls, knocked on doors, and forced the signatures. They didn't know me. They didn't, they'd never met a wasp. They just believed. And so to Roxy Dolphin and Angie Knappenberger, they'll be my sisters forever. And uh, it's kind of a joint operation there, you know, Army, Air Force, Navy. I'm just missing a Marine. And July 1st, 1999. So September was when I got the idea from Deanie Parrish. Less than a year later, we had it signed into public law, which is kind of a record. A lot of people helped out. I know there's people in this audience that helped out, calling and writing and all of that. But there's B. Haydu and Elaine Harmon and Lorraine Rogers. Myself, Wendy Wasek, Kara Sandiford, Tanker Pilots, Don Dunlap, Bobby Dorenboss, former White House fellows and good friends of mine. That was a wonderful day. A lot of hard work. And what's beautiful is in 1977, B was the head of the WASP organization. And when that bill was signed into law to give them veteran status, she wasn't invited. We found out approximately one day prior that this was happening. Roxy Dolphin hunted down B. Haydu, who was flying in a powder puff derby. <laughs> she still flies. And she said, I'll be up there. And she flew her little buns up, and she made it to her signing by God on behalf of, of all of her sisters, and that's a pretty cool thing. But all of us there, it wasn't closing the loop like people say. It was continuum. Don Dunlap and Bobby Dornboss, who I pointed out, both White House fellows before me, Don Dunlap's the first woman to fly the F-22. She's currently the vice wing commander out at Edwards Air Force Base. Bobby Dornboss was one of the first formations of F-16s, that was scrambled on September 11th, both still serving their country. My friend Kim Campbell, my best buddy since I was 12 years old. We talked about her earlier. You saw us with our awful prom dresses and 80s hair. This is her as a bona fide combat veteran. She had been shot up over Baghdad. Uh, she lost all hydraulic power, had to fly the A-10 in manual reversion. Everything says you can't land an A-10 in manual reversion. It hadn't been done successfully before until Kim Campbell brought her plane home and survived, and she received the Distinguished Flying Cross, and I'm so proud to have been her friend for 23 years. She's too below the zone to Lieutenant Colonel, and I'm certain I will be pouring her coffee someday. She had a lovely little boy, but she's now back in the cockpit flying A-10s um, out in Arizona. My friend Teresa Weems, who's a cubicle mate of mine, she says, I'm just a tanker pilot. I said, Teresa, I've been there at 40,000 feet in a thunderstorm on NVGs going where no tanker pilot should, should ever want you know, to come get me, and you guys have come for me. Tell me your story. Two and a half hours later, you know, oops, come to find out, you know, she took in and drug in the first fight, flight of bombers that went into Afghanistan on October 7, 2001. She also was the primary refueling aircraft over Masri Sharif the day that it fell and the Taliban were put out. I'd say that's pretty special, but even if I tell her today it's a big deal, she says it's not a big deal. I love this gal, Julie Jules Grundle. Graduates number one out of her pilot training class, takes a helicopter to be with her husband. 
could have been a fighter could have been a fighter pilot wouldn't trade it for the world she has one of the most noble and honorable missions combat search and rescue uh, in the HH 60 she's recovered plenty of um, sometimes deceased sometimes alive sometimes throwing whatever you body parts you can into her helicopter so that she can get those people out of there before you know something worse happens and the enemy you know takes those remains and does something bad with them for propaganda I think the adults in the audience know what I'm talking about and she says no I, I don't really do anything that special you know what's interesting the Air Force has uh, really bulked up helping out the Army and so she pilots these HH-60s with Army Special Forces Army Rangers on it